Hello and welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. I'm Curtis Robinson, your host for this episode, and we have a good one for you. We have Matt Mosley in the house. Matt, known to Hunter fans, probably best known for his book, Dear Dr. Thompson. The book is about uh, Hunter's efforts to free a woman in Colorado in prison. She was in prison for her role in a police killing, and she was in prison without parole. And Hunter decided that the, and well, I could tell the story, but since he wrote a book on it, let's welcome uh, Matt Mosley. <laughs> welcome, Matt. Hey, thank you, Curtis. It's great to be here uh, hunting and gathering today. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna gather your story, and then you know I love the the first part of it, which is uh, you're from you're from Louisiana, but you were living in Boulder. We're let's let's set the scene. It's the late nineties, I would guess, when Lisa came into our lives. That's about right. Yeah, her uh, case started in nineteen ninety seven, and then by nineteen ninety nine, she was serving a life sentence for felony murder for a crime that she did not commit. Uh, and I'll get into the backstory in a little bit here, but, um, you know, the, the genesis was that she was sitting in prison and she, a cellmate a year earlier had given her a copy of fear and loathing in Las Vegas from Hunter Thompson. And so a year later, she's ruminated in the book. She has nothing to do in prison. So she writes Hunter a letter. And, uh, this was in 2001, lo and behold, which never happens with Hunter, as we as we both know. Uh, he wrote her back, and he said, "You know, not only am I interested in your, you know, uh, your plight here, and I'm sending you a book, but I'm really fascinated by your case." And he uh, saw it as part of his legacy in the legal uh, arena that he, this was a test case to overturn the felony murder law. Um, so that's how he came to the, um, the Lisa Allman case. And so if you want me to, Curtis, I can tell you a little bit more about, you know, the background and then how I came into it. Um, you know, I do communications and public relations and strategy. I had worked for the Clinton White House for a time on the G7 summit uh, and then went to rock the vote in Los Angeles. So I had a pretty good, solid foundation in politics and issue management. And so uh, Hunter gets the letter from Liesel, and the next thing he does is he writes a column for his uh, Hey Rube uh, uh, piece, you know, his Hey Rube column in ESPN. And uh, yeah, and, and for, for people who have not followed that, uh, let me let me just give some background. Hunter wrote for a long time sports columns and you got to put that in italics because he wrote about whatever he wanted to but he but you know <laughs> sports format many times uh for espn and it's still uh hey rube is still some of his best late career <laughs> writing i think so um yep yep well that was funny because he compared it you know to uh it, it was not you know sports could mean the sport of legal wrangling you know it didn't have to be on the football field yeah, sport, 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 <laughs> blood, yeah he included blood sports <laughs> but so get this he writes a just a brief column about Liesel's plight uh and the next thing you know uh you know this is 2001 the family was smart enough to set up a website 
uh, freeleasehold.com. The, the next, you know, after Hunter published his article that he got 30,000 hits driven to Liesl's website. Um, so it really gives you an idea of the breadth and scope of, you know, Hunter's reach there with just one article. So I read the article and I am sitting at the state Capitol in Denver and, um, I literally write out a memo to him and I'm looking at it right here actually. And I sketch out of a, a campaign and I say, you know, here's how you could change the narrative of this young woman's case. And it started out, you know, pretty classic public relations stuff, but let's redefine her message. It was, let's create a national organization, the national committee to free Liesl. Uh, we were going to recruit champions and people who could speak out on her behalf, which that was where Hunter came in. <laughs> and then one of the points was to create champions who would speak out on Liesl's behalf. Uh, and then we were going to do a targeted and ongoing media effort, which I would be responsible for. But then the, the real coup de grace was to plan a major event and concert at the state Capitol on the day that her appeals brief would be filed at the Supreme Court. And so uh, that afternoon, sitting at the Capitol, <laughs> my phone rings. And I had, at the time, I faxed him a memo. Uh, I was good friends with the editor at the Aspen Daily News, uh, Rick Carroll. He gave me his fax number. And so I faxed him a memo. And wouldn't you know, about an hour and 45 minutes later, my phone rings with an unknown number. So I pick it up which I normally wouldn't do. And, and you know, it's, it's like, uh, I'm looking for Matt Mosley. And immediately Curtis, you know, I knew it was him. And, and I had this sensation run through me that like, this could be the call that I've been waiting for my whole life. Right. And so he, um, he gives me, you know, we, we talked for like 45 minutes. We have an hour. And uh, we run through the memo. He's like, I really like it. You know, come visit me in Aspen sometime. And it, at, near the end of the call, he's like, hot damn, son. Let's do a rally. And he's like, how about if I bring Warren Zevon? <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> and so two weeks later, uh, Curtis, I'm up in uh, Aspen. And I pay him a visit. I'm, I'm, I've gone to see the radiators at the belly up with some friends. And so I dropped by Hunter's house and, um, you know, my first meeting, I'd really thought about this a lot, you know, because you didn't want to go in and meet Hunter and be like, Hey, I, I just love your writing. And, you know, I'm such a psycho fan, right? You had to well, see, that's something you and I have in common is, is when we, and I, I had the same thing. I'm like, I really need to calm down because, you know, I'm fanboy from the beginning and from the <laughs> jump, you know? And it's like, you can't go in and be fanboy. No, no, you have to come in and add value in some way. So, you know, my role was the straight up guy as the press guy. And it was very serious. A young woman's life was on the line. Her appeals brief, she'd been sitting in prison for four years. You and know, was a cop killer. I mean, that's what everyone said. Oh, the cop killer. You're like, well, yeah, right. <laughs> and that's well, where we began. <laughs> and I'm going to get into that in just a second. But, um, you know, so I, I only stayed for like maybe a half an hour, for, you know, or maybe it was an hour, you know, it was pretty quick. And it was like, look, we have to get to work. What let's design our press strategy. Let's, you know, nail down a date for the rally. Let's make sure Warren's in. 
and I'll write a press release about announcing the rally, right? So it was like very specific stuff and like, let's get the work done. I'm not there to, we're not there to party. It's not a, you know, this is a working meeting is how I treated it. Um, and then I'm like, Hey, I got to go. I got to go meet my friends. We're going to the radiators. And he goes, well, I want to come. I'm like, well, go, you know, nothing's stopping you. Look, let's go. But, you know, of course it's like, Whoa. um, so that was, uh, you know, the first sort of meeting and, and then he started calling me, you know, and Curtis, you know about that. It's like, my wife was pregnant with our first son and she's, we're getting calls at like two in the morning. Hey, where's Matt? And he's calling on the landline. Just, just really funny. But, you know, let's talk for a second about the lethal case because there's some real facts that are uh, really interesting here and the reason why Hunter got involved. And, um, you know, and start, was- start Matt, if you, if you would start with, felony murder we've we've heard this mm-hmm. recently with the uh the yep. horrible events that that we've seen but but aren't all murders a felony matt <laughs> <laughs> no uh uh a felony murder is a very specific statute that started from english common law in the 14th century that basically says that the you were held responsible for acts that you may not have committed, but you were in the process of or helped to commit. Like you were some kind of accomplice or uh, you were part – you helped set things in motion. And what it is, every other nation has abolished this law except the United States. And it, it's a way for prosecutors and cops to go into a scene and then basically they can charge anybody around that scene with basically anything they want to. And what it does is that it, it's a scare tactic. It forces people to say things that they shouldn't. Uh, they forces them to get an attorney um, when they may have had nothing to do with it. And the good demonstration of this, the perfect demonstration that we all thought was this le- case with Lisa Allman. Um, and so, by the way, there are um, thousands of people locked up in jails today for the same crime, for f- the crime of felony murder. Uh, it, you know, do they uh, deserve maybe some culpability in these crimes? Possibly. But the point being that the felony murder law carries mandatory life without parole. So we'll get to that because some of the jurors with Liesel thought that she was just going to spend a couple of days in jail. They didn't know she was going to jail for life. I may have jumped ahead there for a second, but yeah, so, so the deal was Liesel, Liesel and uh, these guys went to where she had been living with a former boyfriend. They they yeah. let themselves in. They did break in. <laughs> they 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 took they got her stuff right, but right. they might have gotten some other stuff. So there was a burglary. I don't think anyone would dispute there was a burglary that began this, and then. And then what happened, Matt? That is correct. Yeah, so she was living up there. She was living with this guy, Sean Cheever, a real loser. He possibly was kind of, you know, he was, he was abusing her for sure. And so she calls her friend, I got to get out of here. So her friend says, hey, I know two guys. They'll come up. They're going to come up tomorrow, and they're going to get your stuff. So the next day, these two guys show up. Um they're in what she doesn't know, but it's a stolen Trans Am called the Thunder Chicken. 
and he's high on meth and he's got a sawed off gun in the backseat. She doesn't really know this at the time. So they put some of her meager things into the Trans Am. Then they take some of the guy stuff too, some stereo equipment, a, uh, like a really crappy snowboard and a few small things. I mean, very small things, but they're like, we'll teach him a lesson. Well, a neighbor sees this happening. And so she calls the cops. So the cops, uh, you know, they, they leave the scene. His name was Matthias Yannick, uh, was the skinhead. Matthias jumps in the Trans Am, Liesl's in the front seat. They leave the scene and they're driving towards Denver through the Ever Mountains, coming down from Evergreen, kind of the back roads, back hills, foothills of the mountain. And the cops see the car. They whip it around and they start following the Trans Am. Well, he's got warrants out for his arrest all over Denver. This guy was a madman. Um, he should have been in jail a long time ago, but he wasn't. And so the high-speed chase happens. At one point, Liesl tries to jump out of the car, and he grabs her by the arm and says, get the fuck back in here, and pulls a gun to her head. Um, so she is freaking out, right? So then the, the cops are hot on his tail. He leans out of the car and starts firing the shotgun at the police car. Well, now they've called in all sorts of backup. There's, you know, OJ Simpson style chase happens with a media helicopter. They go into the Monaco Place apartments at Hamden and Monaco in Denver. She runs out of the car directly to the police. Help, help. I'm with a madman. And he runs into an alcove of this apartment complex. Okay. Next thing you know, Liesl's in handcuffs in the back of a police car. Matthias Yannick is hiding out in an alcove for about an hour. There's a decorated PhD cop named Bruce Vanderjacht, who was one of the most respected policemen ever in Denver. Uh, very decorated. He was very studious. He had earned a PhD in sociology to better understand his job out on the streets. Um, he pokes his head around the corner and bam, the Matthias Yannick shoots the cop's head off. And then Matthias Yannick turns a gun on himself and kills himself. So there is nobody left to pay for this crime, this heinous crime that had happened in a milieu of skinhead violence all around Denver and that was sweeping the nation in the early 2000s. Um, and so the prosecutor, who would later go on to be Governor Bill Ritter of Colorado, who was a Denver di district attorney, he took the case and said, we are no mercy. We're going to show these skinheads what we can do. We're locking her up. Uh, we're pursuing felony murder, life without parole. And everybody was like, what? Liesl had never touched a gun in her entire life. She was the most peace-loving um, kind of hippie girl. Did she make some bad decisions? Yes. She probably shouldn't have jumped in a car with this guy. But that's not a reason for life without parole. So the jury finds her guilty. And as I mentioned, you know, the jury was set up. So two cops got on the stand and said that they had seen Liesl hand this guy, the gun. There were no fingerprints ever found on the gun of hers. She swears she never touched the gun. Uh, why would she have with in this situation? You know, it just did not add up. And it was pretty evidently known that the two cops lied on the stand 
because their brother, Bruce Vanderjagt, had been murdered. Um, and so they needed, they needed a victim. They needed somebody to pay. Uh, they had a victim, but they needed, uh, an, you know, a crime. And so, uh, fast forward, you know, she's sitting in jail and that's basically the fact pattern of, of what happened. And she had a terrible attorney in the beginning. Um, it kind of didn't really pay attention to the case and, uh, it it just sort of languished, and she got prosecuted. Now that, we were. It. I was I was around for the beginning of that, and I was at the I was at the rally, the Warren Zevon rally, we'll call it. Um, and I remember being assured by anyone I knew with a law degree that we had no chance in hell, but we <laughs> could we could bring a lot of attention to felony murder, which is a real issue still is. But we would have no prayer of getting her out of uh, prison. Now, yeah, that was a common thought. You know, Hal Haddon, the very respected attorney um, in Denver, one of the top criminal defense attorneys in the country. Jerry Goldstein at the time, who was the head of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. You know, they all told Hunter, look, you know, go for it. But here's the harsh reality, right, that you could bring attention to this law. It's a great case to do that with, but don't yet yeah, don't hope for any kind of real outcomes here. But that, um, that's what made Hunter different. I mean, they, there was always this discussion. Sometimes it was thirty seconds, and sometimes it was three hours, where they would say, "Well, Hunter, these are Supreme because we we focused on the Supreme Court. We want to get it overturned, the state Supreme Court." And the and I know you had this same conversation because we had it several times. Is that these are state Supreme Court justices. They they are not going to be moved by press accounts and 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 Matt Mosley's narrative, <laughs> and and it, and we're just going to piss them off. And I'm like, well, which is it? Are are we going to have no effect? Or are we going to piss them off? Because it can't be both. And it's always, I'm like I'm like you know, they're human beings. They're going to see. This and it was. I mean, you're right. We did have a narrative that said essentially, "What the hell?" And and I. It was one of the things. Hunter was just really adept at balancing the legal advice with the the narrative advice. Um, he knew when to let off the gas and let the lawyers work. He knew. Uh, mm-hmm. he, knew he knew when to essentially say no. The court of public opinion is ours. Yeah, we, I was we, just going to say that too. Yeah, he Hunter was very definitely okay. There's the legal angle, angle, and by now, her, for her appeal, Hunter uh, Lisa Allman had a great attorney in Kathleen Lord, who was a bulldog, and she saw the um, inequities and in this case, how it was just a sham, and so she was she was tough. She put together a really good defense. And then, so yeah, let's, you know, you mentioned the rally and that was just a defining kind of moment in my career as well. I mean, you know, we had a couple thousand people show up. We had all sorts of celebrities and we had the, the Dottie lamb, the wife of the, of the governor, former governor. Um, we had Denver city council people up there, we had Jerry Goldstein speaking on behalf of the NACBL. You know, it was really powerful. And we had Warren Zevon, <laughs> lawyers, guns, and money. <laughs> Played his only, by the way, 
a little trivia here. That was his only and ever political appearance or, you know, that he did for a cause. He had never done anything like that. And it was just because Hunter had asked him that he did it. And uh, were you were you there when I tried to when I tried to discuss talking points with him? Oh yeah. Well <laughs> so uh this is a great thing about Curtis. Um I really if you remember in the background, we we um Hunter said, Well, you know, where's the statement from Johnny Depp? And Curtis and I looked at each other. <laughs> and and, and the, what did you say, Curtis? The only thing you could do in that situation is say, "I'll go get it." <laughs> but it wasn't Johnny Depp; it was Benicio del Toro. Uh, yeah. It was Benicio del Toro. Right. I'll, I'll go get it. And I, I borrowed a typewriter in the uh, the press in office. One of the offices, <laughs> one of, one of the offices in the state house. Some somebody took pity on me, and uh, and I wrote the. Uh, I think it was Benicio del Toro's statement. Mm-hmm. The idea was we were going to fax it to him, and he was going to sign off on it and send it back. And uh, uh, we had someone read it. <laughs> and uh, yep. I don't know if Mr. Del Toro saw the statement, but he certainly it, it went live in no time. He may have seen it post facto, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, well. one of the interesting things about that rally too was that you know there were a phalanx of hundreds of policemen who had come out to show their solidarity with their brother, Bruce, Bruce Vanderjagt. And you can't underestimate, you know, the, um, the tension that that caused, right? That there was so, you know, it was, it was like, you're, you're going up against the police here. And, uh, it was very, it was very nervous. It was very nerve wracking in that situation because we, Hunter and I had a big disagreement about, whether we should alert state patrol or not. And, you know, and I said, absolutely, we have to, you know, we can't go in there and just surprise these folks because that will cause even more backlash. And so when I went in to meet with the state patrol and tell them what we were doing, they were like, what, (laughs) what are you doing? And, you know, so they alerted every, all their, all their friends in law enforcement. So it was like, you had all the justice people and then you had all the law enforcement people and you know it was, a, it was a tense rally but what that rally did curtis it was it reframed the narrative of liesel's case that she was no longer the cop killer she wasn't a skinhead anymore they, they tried to portray her as being a skinhead where she was anything but we reframed the narrative as a young woman in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, and this, that she could be anybody's daughter who just stepped into the wrong car at the wrong and, time. And, yeah. And, and I should say that anyone who wishes they were there can come about as close as you can get with Wayne Ewing's film. Correct. Wayne yes. Ewing ma- made a documentary called Free Liesel. And much of that documentary is there that you can get bonus points. It's a trivia game. And I'm in that movie, but you cannot, you know, good luck finding me. And, uh, but that said, it, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful movie. Uh, it's a wonderful book that that you've done on that. And I'm curious what, what I think Hunter did. I mean he he never he didn't do things like that. He did right. he did Aspen stuff. He did that. But but suddenly it's a it's a bigger legal issue. And then we should also say, uh, uh, and I know we're uh, coming up on time constraints, but. Um, uh, I think we should also go into that. But why? Why do you think he did it? 
Yeah, sure. And, and you know, this was a big question. And, and you know, this was Hunter in his later years as um, Hunter as an activist, right? Everybody thought that he was this, you know, Gonzo guy, which you know he had, that was an image that he had created. Uh, but at his at his heart, you know, he really saw the injustice here. And I don't know if he really thought that this was his last hurrah or his final legal legacy. But it sure turned out that way because what happened, Curtis, after the rally, to our to much of everyone's amazement, including the legal community, the Supreme Court accepted Liesel's case on the grounds that the jury wasn't properly instructed as to the elements of the felony murder law, which was absolutely true. And so they had two oral arguments at the Supreme Court, which has never happened. Uh, they usually just have one oral argument. They make a decision. It took the court a year and a half. And during this time, you know, Hunter wrote that very incendiary Vanity Fair article about the case and about Bill Ritter. I think all of his legal counsel told him not to do it. Don't write this article. But Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair had given him a platform. And by damn, he was going to take it, you know. Um, but that that's article. Scathing, that's a scathing <laughs> piece. And uh, it was not welcomed by the Denver Chamber of Commerce, I'll tell you that. Nobody liked that article, not even Hunter's own people. And, uh, you know, but I tell you what, it goes back to the Supreme Court was listening. Um, because during that time, you know, it was very, very heady because you remember Hunter then killed himself. Uh, and it was just shocking. I was in Montrose. I was at some state capital budget hearings that we were conducting. And I, he called me and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be driving back to Boulder. He said, Oh, stop by, you know? And he said, Oh, well, we'll have some fun. It won't just be work. We'll blow off a bomb or something like (laughs) enticing me to come. So the next day I, I called him, didn't hear from him, gets back to Boulder. And the very next day he had killed himself. Uh, so it hit me really hard, you know? Um, and then as, uh, you know, fast forward to that, uh, while the Supreme Court is ruminating on the Lisa Allman case, uh, Johnny Depp hires me to be the family spokesperson for Hunter's funeral, uh, where we blast his ashes out of a 157-foot-tall Gonzo fist. Uh, and that's its own podcast, I think, Hunter uh, Curtis, that we could, we could talk about Hunter's funeral. But let me fast forward from there. After the funeral, um, the Supreme Court remanded the case back to the Denver District Court, who then the, – the prosecutors couldn't put together the same case. It was a different era. It was a different time. Look, the court of public opinion was not on their side anymore. The Denver prosecutors then struck a deal uh, with Liesel to let her out after her ordeal for – um, time served and a pretty strict probation. Uh, she didn't have to make a, uh, they didn't have to go through a whole proceeding. And also, incidentally, the wife of the cop of Bruce Vanderjack, uh, she was just wonderful. And, you know, she had suffered a very big tragedy, but in the end, she forgave Liesel. And it was, it was a very moving and touching sort of into the whole thing because, uh, you know, Liesl was in a, ha- got transferred to a halfway house when this was happening. They cut the deal. They signed the papers. 
Liesl's mother goes to pick her up at the halfway house. It was the first time Liesl had been in a car in 10 years. She had been in prison. And it was the best car ride of her entire life. And she was home free. And how long was it after Hunter died that she was released from from prison? About a year and a half. Because the Supreme Court had to make their decision, and then it had to go through the machinations of the different district court process. Uh, and so, but when people say that the, the port of public opinion and media and this kind of stuff doesn't make a difference, that's where, Curtis, we know that they're wrong. And that, as Abraham Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything, and that without it, you can do nothing. And so, I, you know, I really believe, and Hunter knew this. Hunter knew as a journalist the power of the media. And so the book that I wrote, Dear Dr. Thompson, is it's a it's about you're not gonna find anything about guns and drugs and 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 Hunter's you know gonzo lifestyle. It's a, more about him as an activist. It's a different side of Hunter that most people don't really know. And it was, you know, we know Curtis because we've known him that this was his true side, I believe, and that he had made oh, this he image. It. Yeah, he made this image of Raul Duke to, you know, oh, this is what sells. But at his, at his core, he was a Southern gentleman. He he knew, you know, he admired Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch and that kind of, you know, he saw that this was a chance to to play a role in this system and, and it worked, you know, and, and the travesty is he never knew that it worked. He had, he killed himself before he knew the campaign was successful. Well, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's true. And I always thought that was just, just a tragedy. Really. I have this list of reasons Hunter should have hung around. It's a long <laughs> list, you know, legal marijuana. <laughs> that, that, that's, Trump, <laughs> Trump. I think Trump, he would have Trump, had a field day. Maybe, maybe he would have reconsidered his decision within the era of Trump. But there, I think, in with riots in the street, I think there's a lot to learn from uh, free Liesel because uh, the the systematic change, uh, and yet we fell short. We fell short in changing the law nationally, and and we found this time and again that you'd win. You'd win the battle, but you couldn't engage the war. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean the, the Supreme Court sidestepped the felony murder elephant in the room, found a technicality, and and Liesl had to take the deal. I mean, here here, oh, we found a technicality. Yep. Um, and and it interesting that the Supreme Court found a way to do the right thing without addressing the underlying issue. Right. And that's a great observation. And, you know, it was one that it was it was so close to they could have written a different opinion that would have made a really serious mark in the felony murder law. But instead, they chose a more nuanced, very technical reason that left the felony murder law intact, but then allowed Liesl to get out. And so they teach this case in law schools all around the country today to talk, you know, as, as an example of the felony murder law and that, you know, what it did though, Curtis, uh, you know, while we didn't change the law, we sure as hell made a difference in the way that it is applied, right? That 
they will think twice now about casting such a huge net around crimes to that encompasses and captures everybody that didn't even have anything to do with it just so that they can show that they're, you know, being tough. And it's just, you know, so, so we did, I think in the end, have make a difference in how, you know, they apply the law, but we didn't change the law. And that was, that was kind of a disappointment, but overall we got her out of prison and that was a hell of an accomplishment. And they, uh, that, all right. So Matt, we're out of time for this podcast. We will, we will have you back. And, uh, I know I'm going to get a lot of heat because we didn't talk a lot about the memorial, the great Gonzo fist memorial, but we will talk about that next time. Yes. And if I could just say one uh, plug is that, uh, you know, Curtis and I have done a lot of uh, crazy adventures together, one of which was my swim across Lake Pontchartrain uh, a few years ago. And you can find out more information at dancinginthewater.com. And also uh, in March, I'll be publishing my next book called Ignition. It's about communication strategies to create stronger connections through uh, Routledge Publishing, and that'll be out in March 2021. Well, there, so thank there you for you having go. me. Yeah, thanks for having me today. It was, it was great fun and uh, a good hunter story and a book. <laughs> and we should also say that um, the the film about your swim, like Pontchartrain, the two things I would say about that is uh, it was made by Wayne Ewing, and it has a tremendous soundtrack. <laughs> David Amram, yo, yeah. Oh, yeah, Papa Molly is so Papa fun. Papa Molly, man, in the house, in the boat, as it were. Okay, thank you, Matt. And uh, yes, to all the hunter gatherers out there, keep hunting and keep gathering. <laughs> thank you <laughs> and goodbye. Bye. Well, the southern gentleman hit the highway gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes and shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.